This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. You right, mate? Yep. Good day, here going. Welcome to another colloquium. Um, I am once again filling in for Henry, who is not with us. Uh, actually, Evan, can you do a number on this door over here and see if you can make that close? Because I'm useless and I can't make it happen. Yeah. Exactly. You can work out the math and stuff. I've got a protractor if you need it. Um, I'm quite excited. Uh, <laughs> that was a joke, right? No, it wasn't. Seriously, just fuck out. Really? Seriously? <laughs> I want to talk to you, Evan. If I could, if I could fail you, I would. Um, all right, I'd like to introduce Lee Hunt, who's uh, this evening's this evening's speaker. Um, Lee does a lot of things, but Lee is, is what's referred to as a strategist, strategist and trainer. Um, and Lee works in intelligent advertising uh, and promotion. Um, Lee does branding, and that's what we're going to talk about this evening, and I'm kind of quite excited about that because this is some of the stuff that I grew up doing. Um, uh, uh, in the 1990s, Lee founded one of TV's most successful creative services companies, uh, Lee Hunt Associates. Maybe there's something to be said there. Um, working with more than 100 consultant developing brand strategy for, well, too many things. I'll start again. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit nervous because of the microphone. Um, in the 1990s, Lee founded one of TV's most successful, successful creative services companies, Lee Hunt Associates, which works with more than 100 different television networks around the world. Today, Lee works as a consultant developing brand strategy for new and established networks, and he continues to pioneer a new marketing discipline, break architecture and audience management. He conducts training workshops for television networks around the globe. He's author, he's author of Fundamentals of Television Advertising and Promotion and Breakthroughs the quarterly anthology of innovative advertising and promotion. Um, I'm kind of excited about this because a whole chunk of my PhD thesis was about uh, television ident and branding strategy, which I think is part of what Lee's going to talk about today. So Lee, if you'd like to come up, I'm going to stop making a fool of myself. uh, (laughs) He did very well. Turn the mic off, excellent. So what I thought I'd do today is take you guys through part of a presentation that I did at Promax this summer. And Promax is the Promotion and Marketing Executives International. It's, uh, we have a conference every year, about five, 6,000 people, television marketing people from all around the world come, and it's usually in New York. And we all gather to share new ideas of what's going on in, in television and new media. And I do a session every year called New Best Practices, which is sort of a, a roundup of everything that's sort of broken in the last year. It's kind of a, a state of our art. Uh, where I get my information from is uh, I have about 10 DVRs set up in my studio, and they randomly record prime time on uh, 100 basic cable and broadcast networks from 7.55 at night to 11.05. And then there's a team of us every morning that just go through at high speed looking for anything new or interesting or innovative that anybody's done that night. We dump it to a hard drive. At the end of the quarter, we go through it, look for any kind of interesting trends or just fun stuff or anything that that is new and different. And then uh, in in the past, we put it on DVD and send it out to subscribers. And now it goes to all the Promax membership. 
So this is a lot of that information. One of the things that we had focused on this year was this theme of, of the future of television marketing because obviously everything has been in such a, a flux of change. I mean, it has been really since 1997, but this last year in particular, and including the, the springtime, was a time of really dramatic change because of the way ratings have changed. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. But it was interesting, when I started thinking about the future of television marketing, there was sort of a, a uh, I'm trying to think of the, the best way to describe it, but a, a, a conflict or a paradox of certain things is that one of the things people keep worrying about, well, should they be thinking about the, the fragmentation of the industry or is it really about the convergence of all the different media? Or maybe in, instead of that, it's really about narrow casting or maybe we should really be thinking about broadband. Uh, the other side of that, well, which screen should we be focusing on? The, uh, the great big HD screen or maybe the little tiny mobile screen? And then finally, thinking about, well, who's the competition for television out there? Is it, it iTunes or is it YouTube? So there's this paradox going back and forth. And you can see I just got my new version of Keynote, and I had to play with all the little animation. It was just my excuse for that to do it. A frustrated designer. Now, back in, in 1999, I had sold my creative services company to, uh, to Razorfish, which uh, actually had an office in Cambridge for a while. And when we talked about the future of television then, uh, I used to trot out uh, this slide right here, this whole idea of one brand across all these different screens. And it, it, I thought it was pretty perceptive at the time, but I had no idea that it would eventually really come to this. And that really exists, and, and you can buy it at Sky Mall, and you can pick it up on, on the airplane. Now, obviously, this whole notion of, of television, all the stuff that the people I work with grew up with and have been working in, is changing. Uh, obviously, uh, an iPod is not television, but we can watch television programming on it. Uh, a laptop computer is not a television, but we can watch television programming on it. A phone is not uh, a, a television, but we can watch television programming on it. All the lines in our business are really becoming blurred, and, and it's not just TV. What is this? It's a camera. Where are the buttons I used to dial my friends? No, you load film into it, and it takes pictures. You load what? You know, film. A thin, flexible strip coated with light sensed from emulsion onto which record an image called the negative? What kind of crazy science fiction is that? Who would invent a camera phone that doesn't call anyone? Hello? Now get the new Nokia flip phone for just $49.99 and get up to three Nokia phones free. Cellular One. Get the signal. And I love that spot because it really shows how the whole idea of everything is changing. And another paradox is this idea of, of channels. Because as technology continues to increase, the definition of a channel is moving away from, from the real technical one to a much more simplistic one, uh, really just a route of communication or access. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Here's one of my favorite promos from ABC last year. I have something I think you should see.
Now, what's great about that promo is that obviously it sells the show, but it does something more. It engages you. It's a piece of entertainment. But what's interesting and what's beginning to be missed in a lot of promotion is this whole idea of navigation. Because for viewers of Lost, their channel or their route to their show isn't just on ABC or in New York, WABC on, on Wednesday nights. It's also iTunes Music Store. It's ABC.com, free episodes. It's Time Warner on demand where I live. It's Verizon Vcast, hit shows. The point is that all the different ways I as a viewer can access uh, losses begin to change. And these gatekeepers that have all been sort of transparent in the past are beginning to change. Now, if you think about it, ABC never really was the keeper of that show because cable operators and affiliates, network affiliates, were the final gatekeepers, the final window to the viewers. And they've always been pretty transparent. But the question is, what's going to happen when one of these other gatekeepers decides they want to own loss? They want to be the brand that has brought it to viewers. What's going to happen during that time? Well, what networks have begun to try to do is to weave that network brand in with the show brand. Because the reality is, shows migrate from channel to channel, from network to network, all over the place, in, in syndication, or even within the same family. For example, if you watched uh, the, the premiere of Journeyman on NBC uh, uh, Monday night, well, you could have watched it on Sci-Fi Wednesday night. So they bounce back and forth. So this idea of being able to weave your network brand with your television brand has become more and more important. And probably the best one to do it out there has been TNT with their whole positioning of we know drama. Not we are drama, we know drama. We put a perspective on it because they're a general entertainment channel. But even their sports, their movies, pretty much anything they put on air, they can have a point of view about drama and they can weave their shows into it. Obviously, when they have a flagship show that is pure drama, it works really well. Um, another example that Josh and I were, were talking about a few minutes ago is USA Network, which is also a general entertainment network. And they were looking for a way to keep that broad base of viewership, that broad base of programming, but still try to stand for one thing. Because obviously, that's the easiest and the best thing you want to do. If you want to have an efficient communication with your audience, stand for one thing. And it goes way beyond television. If you think about uh, Volvo, what does Volvo stand for? Safety. safety. Even though Volvo doesn't have one of the, the top 20 safest cars, but they own that little niche in viewers' minds. So if you're thinking of a premium automobile and you have a family, Volvo's probably going to be one of the first ones you look at. And that's what television networks want, too. When there are 350 different channels out there and you're in the mood for a certain thing, they want you to think, oh, I'll go to that channel. I'm interested in something dramatic, I'll go to TNT. So what USA tried to do was own something within all these different kinds of stories, these shows that they own, and it was the idea of characters. But they also recognized there was a way to weave the network brand into their show. So I, I'm going to show you an example. This is a, a promo um, that has characters from the 4400 and Monk. Has everybody seen the 4400 or anybody seen it? Well, for those who haven't, it's a show about uh, over the last 60 years, all these people disappeared, and supposedly they were you know, kidnapped by aliens, and they suddenly reappear 
on this lake shore one day, 4,400 of them. So of course, Homeland Security takes them and puts them in quarantine because uh, nobody knows why they're there. They don't know why they're there. And then they start uh, uh, showing unusual powers. But for the first six months, they were locked away in quarantine, all 4,400. So we've got one character from that show, Sean, who's sort of the leader and who's written a book about being one of the 4,400 in the series. And then you've got Monk, which is the uh, drama comedy about the, uh, uh, the detective, germaphobic detective, obsessive compulsive Monk. Now the shows have nothing to do with each other. They're not even on the same nights. They're produced by different companies, but they both appear on USA Network. So USA found a way to try to own those shows, to be able to brand and build the personality of the shows while tying it in to the network itself. When you were brought back from the, the future, they put all 4,400 of you into quarantine? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And this was a totally sterile, completely controlled environment. Yeah. Wow. That sounds nice. Um, who should I make this up to? No, I just, I just need the address. <laughs> So it's all part of their character's welcome campaign. So w what they do is, is they, in these spots, they're providing entertainment. Because then what we're going to start talking about is the fact that during commercial breaks, viewers tune away. And now that we're moving to commercial plus three days of DVR ratings, suddenly that has to change. So now marketers are looking for a way to sell their shows, but at the same time, give people what they came to television for, to be entertained, to be engaged. So here, they're able to sell the show sell the characters, which is their positioning, and tie it all back into the network. And, and if you think that, that that's not significant, for example, when, when I talk about Lost and the, the whole question of where people are going to find it, so many people say to me, you know, nobody's ever going to forget that, that Lost is on ABC. Everybody knows that. But if you think back to that spot I showed you about the teenage girl, we know that four out of five teenagers can't name the top four broadcast networks, which even just a decade ago, would have been an unbelievable statement that that could change so quickly, that the, the, the integration of all these different cable networks have made the four broadcast networks just another choice on the dial. Now, I still believe in this whole idea of, of weaving broadcast networks, cable networks, any kind of network and the shows together, but I also began to, to realize that that's really only one facet of the problem. The, the true value of all these different platforms is not necessarily getting people to a television show, although that's what I'm interested in doing because that's the medium I work in primarily, but there's an opportunity to sort of flip it around the other way and use all these different platforms to expand the television story. And that's where I, I really started first hearing about uh, convergence culture and, and transmedia. And I had already read Dr. Jenkins' book before I, I met Joshua. But we started applying it in the TV world on a, on a much more practical basis to save our asses and keep our jobs. And, and that's the more idea that you can take all these things and tie them together. For example, in Lost, is that ABC started using all these different platforms, not necessarily to try to get more people to watch the show on ABC, but to be able to expand the show, to let it flow across all these different platforms to what ABC began to call the lost experience. 
that it wasn't just watching the television show, it was really having the whole experience of, of belonging to this. And it's what you guys, I believe, call transmedia storytelling, which uh, I love to put those words out because my clients think, oh, this guy's really smart. But it's really just a way of, of growing the television audience across all these different platforms. Now, the way ABC had applied it is interesting in, in lots of different ways. It was a real experiment for them, but it's very practical. In some ways, they used old media to be, do this kind of transmedia storytelling, the, the show itself. Sorry. Put the book down. It's not a book, it's a manuscript. I'm about to be the first and only guy to find out who's done it. Well, actually, Sawyer wasn't the only first one. You can actually buy the manuscript to that novel, Bad Twin, which was written by someone who perished on the plane. You can buy it on Amazon. Is that the writers of Lost, the creators of Lost, Lost, hired a novelist to write this novel. It has nothing to do with the show. It's just a tangent that takes you to another part of the Lost experience. Um, they also tried some, a little bit of interactivity, the way television often tends to do it. Let's try that again. Since the dawn of time, man has been curious, imagining all that is possible. The Hanzo Foundation, reaching out to a better tomorrow. Discover the experience for yourself. Call 1877-H-A-N-S-O-R-G. Now they just drop those little spots into Lost and around Lost. And if you're a, a viewer of Lost, you know the Hanso Foundation is sort of the, the secretive, evil, or at least questionable organization behind this. They put that phone number up. You saw how long it was up there. A very short amount of time, overwhelmed the phone bank, shut the whole system down. They had to reset it every time they, they aired that spot. Sometimes they just try little fun little things, little treats. And again, if you watch the show, that's the stash of candy bars they found inside the hatch. Just a little tiny detail. And of course, anybody who went there got deeper into the lost experience. Anyone who went to the website, and they got a candy bar as, as well. So notice the connective tissue here is that for television, it's very interactive, as interactive as television can be, which is either sending people to the telephone or sending them to the web. And, and to me, that's what the, the real opportunity for this transmedia storytelling is all about. But a lot of times people say, okay, well, that's great for edgy serialized drama, but, but how do you fit it into the general entertainment fair that's a part of most American television? Pop star in Canada. <laughs> so that was CBS's How I Met Your Mother. So what they did is they, they actually seeded a, uh, a MySpace page with a Robin Sparkles fan club page that had the music video. Before that episode aired, they had about 200 friends. Afterwards, they had more than 10,000 friends. But more importantly, for CBS, uh, 
it became one of the, uh, the most viewed videos on MySpace or, or YouTube that week. And more importantly, the next week, the 18 to 34-year-old ratings were the highest the show had ever seen. Just because of that little, uh, during the show, they mentioned that it was on MySpace. There was no real push towards it. It's just that the character said, wow, I went to the MySpace page and went to the Robin Sparkles fan page. So it just shows the power of being able to send people across all these different platforms. Here's actually, this is the, uh, the fan page itself, which I think is still up there right now. And, and this is what, what you guys call uh, world making, which is really interesting to me. And, and part of what I was talking to all the Promax people is what that means for us marketing people. And, and I took a quote from Dr. Jenkins out of the book that it's the process of designing a fictional universe that will sustain franchise development. TV people love to hear franchise development. <laughs> One that's sufficiently detailed to enable many different stories to emerge. Creatives love that part of it. But coherent enough so that each story feels like it fits with the others. And the ad sales guys really like that because they can sell each single strand. So all the different constituents that make up television really like this idea. But it's sort of a hard concept for us TV people to get, so I put it in a, a much more uh, simplistic term. I, I think of a ride at, uh, at Disneyland, like Pirates of the Caribbean, which is kind of storytelling. If you think about it, you go to the ride, you get in a boat, and you sort of float through a story arc. You go through all these little tableaus, and you see different things along the way. And to me, this idea of transmedia storytelling for television is sort of like, well, what if you could stop at one of those tableaus and actually get off the boat and follow that tangent, follow it through, and don't get on the boat and go on your own way? And, and that's what this opportunity is and what television people are, are really excited about. And obviously, it's something more than television. It's why everybody wanted a, a, a big part of, of YouTube. It's why Rupert Murdoch bought MySpace. It's probably the reason that Tom Freston got fired from Viacom. But in some ways, for us TV people, this really isn't a, a, a new idea. If you think about it, Star Trek is the perfect example of it, is that this is a story that's continued on for 40 years, but it only used old media. It took nearly half a century for all these different stories to develop. Where now television shows, when they're developed, they have to have all these different tendrils going out in lots of different directions immediately. And that sort of begins to have this, develop this idea for us on the marketing side of how do you create these, these transmedia brands, for lack of a better word? How do we take television networks or, or, or television channels and make them be something more than just a place on the screen that you have in your living room? Well, part of what you understand is that the TV is sort of two different kinds of brands. There are shows which are really the, the content brands, and that's where people have an emotional stake. Nobody comes to TV to watch a channel. They come to watch a show. The channel is just an easy way for them to get there. But the emotional connection is there in the content brand because it's full of characters, it's full of stories that can continue on and on and on. When we had the, uh, the creators of Lost were also at Promax, and they talked about the fact that in 2010, Lost will leave ABC, but the stories of Lost and the characters will continue to develop on and on until they finally get tired of them or stop making money off of them and decide to kill them off. But it used to be that when a television show stopped, the life of the characters stopped. With Lost, they don't expect that to be the case. So essentially, those become the primary part of the brand experience 
and television networks are really just collective brands. Like ABC is just a collective brand. It's a place where all the content is aggregated and its success rises and falls with the success of the content that it's aggregated. Now, it doesn't mean that a network can't stand for something. You can know drama or you can, uh, you can welcome characters or you can even not be TV if you want. You can do all these different things because, again, we want that narrow, collective, efficient, frictionless way for people to make programming choices, how they find the, those collective brands. So the question we as TV marketers are always facing, how do we stay relevant? Particularly when the show we're launching is part of an experience that's going to live across lots of different platforms. And as time goes by, the television part of this experience may become less and less relevant or less and less uh, important. So I started thinking, if, right, if you're going to make these transmedia brands, turn your television network into something more than a television network, you need some rules because TV people really like rules so they can break them. The, the, the first rule is that you've got to be everywhere. experience. Get hooked up with free episodes on our broadband player. I'm now. And check out Cassie Space for exclusive buzz on the Charles and Cassie romance. You can even ask Cassie a question. I need to go him. We should step up. Then link up to iTunes to download your favorite episodes. At all new Lincoln Heights every Monday at 7, 6 central only on ABC Family. Exclusives for your cell phone, only at WAP.BravoTV.com. Get design tips and photo diaries from the cast. Games and viewer polls, plus top design wallpapers and ringtones. And every week touring the show, get behind-the-scenes text messages from me. From me. From me. From me. To sign up for the designer dish, text design to Bravo 27286. Decorate your cell phone with a full palette of top design, only at WAP.BravoTV.com. Now that's still the arrow's kind of going out, not so much bringing it back to the content itself, but it's sort of the first step that, that we've begun to take. Uh, rule number two is, you know, understand every platform and embrace everything. Hi, my name's Bill. Lately I've noticed a lot of negative comments about NBC putting their promos here on YouTube and about YouTube for selling out to the man. Well. I do some of those promos, and I'm here to tell you that NBC is not some cold corporate machine. It's people like me, trying to put their son through prep school and buy their daughter a horse. So when I tell you that the new season of My Name is Earl is the funniest ever, it's so soft, with more Emmys than any other comedy and great guest stars like Burt Reynolds, it's not for NBC, it's for me. And when I say the premiere of The Office will reveal what happened after the kiss and expose a new office secret, it's not because NBC wants me to. It's because the horse my daughter wants costs more than a small house. <laughs> so the next time you see an NBC promo, don't think of the giant conglomerate that also makes light bulbs, like the GE Compact Fluorescent. <laughs> think about Valerie here, who does Friday Night Lights. When's that on, Val? Friday night lights on Tuesdays. That's not confusing. Or young Ben here, 12 years old, came over in the wheel well of a jet, trying to support a family in a tiny one-room shack. What do you got, Ben? Kidnapped. Kidnapped. Is it good? It's good. And I'm 27. Kidnapped. Wednesdays at 10. 
And I don't live with my parents. Or Tim Anderson here. Came all the way from Australia just to do a Heroes promo. Actually, I've lived here. Hey, sorry about the crocodile hunter. You still have Colin Farrell, though. Yeah, he's our Heroes, Mondays at 9. So please, if you think you might want to write a negative comment about an NBC promo, think of us. All of us. Because when you watch NBC, America wins. My name is Earl in the office, Thursday at 8, 7 Central on NBC. Sorry they make me do that. Rule number three is look at your audience, understand that they're, they're more than, than people you're pushing content to, they're people involved. So empower them, empower everyone. We asked you to give us your take on Discovery shows. They have secured a few more meals. You responded. Oh man, I'm exhausted. And what you said in, we shouldn't be alive, was frankly pretty Insulting. Heroes Poof Discovery. The ultimate viewer submitted low cost, high quality, extremely entertaining Discovery parody special hosted by Minecraft Journey Jobs Wilson narrates a series American Job for American Odd Rod Edge Envy's Catch. Ooh, he's good. Premier Sunday at 10 on the Discovery Channel. So you can see it's, it's a starting to move, this sort of back and forth. And, and obviously there's a lot more to being these transmedia brands. But I, I wanted to focus now on, on TV, which is the one thing I, I primarily know about. And this idea of the way television is changing and, and the panic we've all begun to respond to in the, in the television world. First of all, is that, that split between linear and, and on-demand, which continues to move forward with the success of video on-demand and TiVo and uh, uh, iTunes and YouTube. And, and people often say, well, are we moving to a purely on-demand world? And my feeling is, no, it's, it's always going to be a mix of the two. And, and the example I always use is sort of like the, the, the stereo system in your car. You have both on-demand and you've got linear. Your, linear is your radio, where somebody else makes the programming choices for you. And then your, your cassette deck or your tape deck or your iPod is your on-demand, where you make the entertainment choices. And you move smoothly back and forth of those, depending on the kind of experience that you want to have at that time. And I think that's what's going to happen to television as well. But the real panic these days is in the way linear television is beginning to change. Because in starting in June, Nielsen started reporting C3 ratings, which is commercial ratings plus three days of DVR, or what we just call pod ratings, the commercial pod ratings. And what we're beginning to see is that everything is tur being turned upside down and, and inside out. This, was, uh, this came out in, in June from a TiVo stopwatch, which actually does very granular measurements second by second. And they found that the, the five top most commercials did not air during the five most watched shows, which is very concerning because it changes what's going to be a hit. And, and I couldn't resist. I stuck in this promo from Nickelodeon that for some reason reminded me of this as sort of a, a, a good metaphor. He was just an ordinary until that fateful day when he accidentally swung over the bar and learned he had incredible powers beyond those of any superhero. He had become inside out boy. He couldn't fly or even leap tall buildings. But what he could do, gross out adults, made him a hero to kids the world over. Inside Out Boy, what you want in a hero. From the network that's got what you want, Nickelodeon. So instead of Inside Out Boy, what we're moving to is Inside Out Buys, is the way that media buyers look at television now has really begun to change. Now, we know 
when you come to a commercial break, there's a problem that commercials decrease viewership. You air an acceptable number of commercials, you will lose an acceptable amount of viewers. But there's always that balancing act. But if we're being judged not on how many people watch the show, but how many people stick around and watch the commercial, that changes everything. It redefines what's a hit. You may have a number one show, but during the break, everybody leaves to go surfing or go to another platform or go to the bathroom, whatever it is, they're not there to watch the commercial. Or you may have another show that on the program rating side is only, only uh, the 20th highest rated show, but for some reason, people stick around during the commercial breaks. That will become your hit show, and the number one show will drop down to number 20. We already began, started to see it in the last year with engagement which became sort of the watchword of Madison Avenue, how involved people are in the commercial. Not just whether there were eyeballs looking at it, but if they were really involved in it. And what we began to see with shows was a change. You think about uh, two big shows like Desperate Housewives and, and ER, which are almost always in the top 10 most watched shows. But when they were scored for engagement, how involved people were with the shows, Desperate Housewives dropped down uh, yeah, to number 11, and ER dropped to number 16. So we're beginning to see this disparity that marketers and advertisers really worry about. If you look at this, this is a, a six-month layout of uh, 11 different cable networks during prime time, and it's the drop-off during the commercial break. You can see USA, which is also the number one network right now, had the lowest amount of drop-off. They lost the fewest amount of people during the break where you've got Bravo down here had the most significant drop-off and a lot of variation in there. Now this is for the entire pod. Let's say you got a three-minute break. This is the average of that pod. If you just take the commercial part of it applied against it, well, you can see it's the commercials that brought it down. But what's really interesting is when you look at the promos and suddenly you get this disparity that uh, honestly is really inexplicable. You got A&E, which has pretty crappy promos actually, uh, FX, sci-fi, and USA. For some reason, people like their promos. Now, some of it may be, certainly for USA and sci-fi, they put all their promos in the A position. So coming out of the show, you immediately see a promo. Now, intuitively, that makes sense. I came to NBC to watch an NBC show, so if you give me information about another NBC show, I'm likely to listen. I didn't come to NBC to buy a Ford truck. So when that Ford truck commercial comes on, I'm more likely to change the channel. But that actually doesn't explain it with a lot of these networks. So everybody's running around in a panic, experimenting with all these different ways of trying to become flypaper, get people to stick around during the breaks. The one that's gotten the most notice has been the, uh, the CW. And part of that's because they're a broadcast network, uh, and they have a really good press department as well. Uh, they started doing a thing called content wraps last year where essentially they will take a three-minute break and they will fill it with a single piece of content, interstitial content that's sort of advertising and sort of feel-good information. Um, they also started a new thing, or actually they're starting this week, a thing called Quickies, which are another version of that, and they have a show now on Sundays called CW Now, which is just one giant commercial. There are no commercial breaks in it, all the commercial messages are woven into the content. Uh, but what I did, I, I'm not going to show you the whole three minutes of, of this content wrap. I, I edited it down some so you get a flavor of these things. And what's interesting 
Uh, they launched these before there were commercial ratings, and during the last upfront, they were sold out immediately. Advertisers love this idea, even though it's still not proven. So what you have, that would fill out a full three minutes, and they would use it during the first or second break of each hour. So essentially you get a three-minute story in, at the 8 o'clock hour and a three-minute story at the 9 o'clock hour because uh, the CW doesn't have a, a 10 o'clock hour. They just have a two-hour primetime block. Um, and it's been successful for them on the ad sales front side, although we're still not sure how it's worked out on the commercial rating side. Uh, even though they've gotten the most attention, it's probably E and the Comcast networks that have done the most experimentation because they've been the most desperate. The, the three networks that have the lowest amount of retention during commercial breaks are E, MTV, and VH1. Now, part of the reason MTV does is because they have 17 minutes an hour of non-content, whereas most networks just have about 14 or 15 minutes of non-content. So they have an extra two minutes an hour that they're trying to sell you something, whether it be a, another show or some kind of product. So those three networks, and E in particular, have been trying different ways of trying to get their viewers to stick around. Now the other side of it, if you think about MTV, VH1, and E, what the other thing they have in common is their content's very light. It's very fluffy. Uh, it's, it's nibbly, is that you can just come and take a little bit of it and, and move on. Or maybe you can only take a little of it and you can't take any more, so you tend to go on. So they've been trying really interesting things. One thing they tried last year, uh, this is a, a timeline of, of TV. Blue is content, green is commercials, yellow is promos, and orange is what I'm going to show you here. These little things right there are lower third keys that you see. So what they'll do, they will come out of a segment, and there'll be a little lower third key, and they'll ask a question, and they'll say, be right back with the answer. Uh, I'll show you an example of it. that we're not selecting you to sign with us. Now we have to go into that office, talk and discern which one of the two of you fits with our client list. So right now... So the segment finishes right there. And then they go into their commercial break and they have a promo in the A position. And then in the middle of, of the break, they'll come up with a full screen spot, graphic spot, that really answers the question and then ask a second question. Jada Pinkett Smith, the voice of the hippo in Madagascar, just saw her heavy metal band Wicked Wisdom added to this summer's Ozfest. Pretty bleepin' impressive, Jada. While Jada departs on tour, it's time to say goodbye to recently departed Paul Wynn, a legend in the art of voice work. Winchell was the voice of what beloved cartoon animal. So then they go on with the rest of the break, some more commercials, and then come all the way down to the end, and then the next segment begins, 
and they have another lower third key that gives you the final answer. And that's where we're going to make our money. Yeah, well, uh, that's not the business that I want to be in, okay? I want to be in the leading man business where people make $20 million a movie. Listen, this kid David's going to be a long-term project. Right. Amy can start work tomorrow. Amy, she's, she's a bit average. So what they've done there, they continue on to that segment, is they're trying to weave their viewers all the way through the break, sort of a watch-to-win kind of philosophy. And if you also notice that besides having just the... Uh, the bug here, they also have the key of the name of the show. They do that, Bravo does that. It's funny because uh, just, maybe I'll get to this at the end, there's a whole interesting story about the way bugs have developed, or dogs as you call them. Uh, that, the PBS guy's like, what is he talking about, yeah. dogs? Uh, but the way bugs have developed, and maybe we'll talk about that in a second. The other thing that E has done is they've, they've tried to connect or bridge content with the commercial break. They have these little news crawls, the same kind of thing you see on CNN, except they're Paris Hilton updates. And what they do is they start them during the bump out of the segment, where the, the segment is ending, they say, come back and you're going to find out this about that. And then it continues on underneath the commercial, which has always been considered, the commercials were always sacrosanct. You'd never put anything on top of the commercials. But E has been so desperate to try to get people to stick around, they've convinced their advertisers to, to let them give it a try. Small flare and made it into a large flare. Coming up. He had taken off all of his clothes. There was a shotgun playing near his feet. We see glossy curls, smooth, straight styles. We see you. They're trying to get people to stick all the way through and, and connect all those elements together. Some of the things that E and the other Comcast networks like Style and Golf Channel have done is short form franchises where they'll take uh, E's true Hollywood stories and they'll have a 20 second version of it that they'll drop in. Uh, they also have little shows within shows. They will introduce over a three hour block of, of prime time two-minute snippets of a, another show that they're trying to introduce so that if you watch an entire three hours, you get about 20 minutes of this new show just by watching and embedded in other shows. And then they've also been doing a lot of play-along games with text messaging and, and mobile. VH1, again, part of the, the Desperate group, has been doing something similar, this sort of show within a show, except it's more of a... I guess a variety show within the show would be the best way to describe it. But they do something more than E. They actually promote these little breaks. They call them showstoppers. And they, they run promos for them. They run menus for them. So I, I, I put together one showstopper. I, again, I shrunk it down. But I also stuck together a, a promo for showstopper as well as the menu that they use, the lineup.
Since stepping off ego trips, the white rapper show, Persia has been embarking on her career as the next great rapper, not just the next white rapper. She's perfect for this hip-hop game. With love and support from communities far and wide and a debut album geared for release in late spring 2007, Persia is coming out stronger than ever. I'm really confident about this one. Currently performing live and working with some of the industry's hottest producers and DJs, this MC continues to fight by packing a new punch. And they're still doing that, even though it still has not proven particularly successful. But again, desperation just breeds uh, continually trying. Now, Fox has done, and you would think, because Fox is really about surprise and innovation, they've probably done the least of all this. this last year, they introduced uh, what I call a pod person, a, a CG character, uh, Oleg the Taxi Driver who would appear as little breakbusters within commercials. And I think the idea is that you would fall in love with this little character and you'd want to sit through the commercials and see what he did next. I, I put three of them together and I'll, I think you'll see why people didn't stick around. <laughs> would you like to go on a date? My name is your name. We go on a date. Would you like to see my license and registration? Would you like to see my lies and regurgitation. Ray's Pizza, Pizza Ray. Ray's Italian, Pizza by Ray. Ooh, hot Didn't last too long. And I, I don't, I can't really imagine how anybody sold that, that concept. Now ABC though has done something sort of radical is uh, they use accelerated flow, the idea of squeezing down psychological time. One of the things that we know is that when you dip to black, that's a psychological cue for people to change the channel, is that it's just subconscious. You see some dip to black, you know there's going to be a transition. Usually the transition means you're going to a commercial. You don't want to watch the commercials, you change the channel. So ABC eliminated the fade to black and do a transition out of the end of a segment into the first commercial. So I, I brought three of them, uh, and they're cut tightly back to back. There's coming out of Ugly Betty into a commercial, coming out of Dancing with the Stars into a commercial, and coming out of Men and Trees. And th these are all experiments that you won't see on the air too often, but, uh, but they're, they're doing them as, well, they, they are on the air, but they're doing as very limited research at this point. Suffering with sinus pressure and congestion. Are you meeting up with Jenny? Um, let me check. Hey, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> 
you can see it's sometimes it kind of works like in that last one where you've got an interesting story it's not too grating but the Sudafed one and that drives me crazy every time I see it now they also do it the under other end of the break coming out of commercial back into the show available on the all-new full-size Tundra the truck that's changing it all For performance, handling, and styling, Fusion left drivers tingling all over. Check it out. Visit a Ford dealer or go to FusionChallenge.com. Ghost Rider, rated PG-13. Opens everywhere Friday. Now, I'm not quite sure why they have to do it coming out, because what happens during a break, you get what I call the Nike swoosh of erosion at the first 30 seconds, so you get a huge drop off, and then as the break continues, it starts, the audience starts coming back, and then it runs into the segment a little bit, so you get some recovery time. So the back part doesn't make a lot of sense. And then TNT introduced something this summer, uh, kind of different when they were doing their, their sports, uh, that they made a really big deal ab about it in uh, on, on Madison Avenue. I'll show you the first part of how they introduced it. This also marks a big year for TNT with the introduction of their new wide open coverage broadcast format. As someone who knows a little something about running wide open, it's only fitting that they asked me to introduce this revolutionary new concept for NASCAR coverage. The fact is, a majority of viewers still watch the race on a 4x3 television. You guys get this. Unfortunately, this doesn't leave much room for in-race stats like running order and other race information. The graphics must be superimposed over the footage. So the director and camera operators are left with very little real estate to capture the action. Now, if you're cool enough to have an HD TV, you get this. A 16 by 9 image or 22% more picture. And yeah. if you know anything about watching NASCAR, 22% makes a huge difference. <laughs> so TNT has found a way to give you guys complete coverage whether you're watching a standard or high-definition television. The idea was to steal that 16 by 9 action, strip away all the graphics, and give it to the 4x3 viewers. Now, when you watch a 16 by 9 image on a 4x3 TV, it gives you that letterbox effect. TNT plans to make use of that letterbox space by moving the footage up and filling in the leftover area with all the stats and information you want to see, but without it getting in the way of the action. So buckle up, because this is TNT's wide open coverage. On behalf of Pepsi and its bottlers, enjoy the Pepsi 400. Now what they also did with that, really interesting, and they did it in the Pepsi 400, is TNT actually created all the commercial for the sponsors. Rather than taking the spots that the agencies had done, TNT created spots that were specific to the race, so that they were incredibly relevant to that particular viewer's moment. And they, and I'll show you, they just squeezed them down right here. But I, I, I watched them all, and take two, they were all really awful, surprisingly awful for TNT. Uh, so I can't imagine something they'll continue, but uh, uh, let me just show you a little bit of one. I won't make you watch the whole thing. Light beer. 
these caution flags this week? Man, they practically ruined a good race. Yeah, it seemed like they're gonna race all day under yellow. So there's debris on the track. Debris, I didn't see any debris. <laughs> yeah, me neither. What's the definition of debris? Apparently stuff you can't see on the track. I mean, you would think if they're gonna throw a caution, you would have to be able to see it with a naked eye. I hear you. It's like throwing a caution flag because you got a bug on your windshield. No doubt. Or red flag in the race because your zipper on your fire suit is broken. Or, or canceling a baseball playoff game because you ran out of hot dogs. Or canceling a championship football game because you broke a shoelace. It's like sending the award-winning taste of your Miller Lite back because you got a torn label. It goes on and on and on. But what you have to realize is that with C3 ratings, if people are sticking around and just watching the race in the background, the retention is 100%. So the advertiser is getting the eyeballs, whether they're quality eyeballs, whether they're engaged is another question. What was interesting, the only thing that was full screen during the, the, the whole presentation of the race were the promos for both TBS and, and TNT. But so what people are doing, you've seen the trend here, most people are adding stuff to the brakes, trying to make the brakes more engaging. But we know that, that clutter, too many elements in a brake, is a real killer. So there's also a lot of networks sort of moving the other way, is merging advertising messages with promotional messages. And if they're, they're done well, if they're done with the, the, the brand values of the advertiser, the show, and the network, it, it can work really well. I, I showed an example from, uh, from USA. Sean Spencer has a lot of friends in the circle. There's Detective Lassiter. What are you, nuts? Well, there's Detective O'Hara. Sean, this isn't a date, it's work. All right, what about Sean's father? Sean, you've got about three seconds to get out of my way. Okay, forget the father. But there's Gus. He likes Sean. Best friend. And that's the circle. It's a circle of one, but it's a close circle of one. Awesome. Take some time to keep in touch with your circle. Hello. And watch Sonic on the episodes Fridays at 10. Only on USA. Presented by Altel Wireless, the only company to bring you my circle. So it works on three different levels. It sells Alltail with the, the campaign that, uh, that they're doing. And it, uh, it sells Psych, the way the show is told. And it also deals with the USA brand, all about characters. So in one 20-second spot, they took care of three different problems there. Now, what you also is a, a lot of promos now you see have a little sponsorship tag at the end. They'll have 15 seconds of promo and five seconds of sell. And usually the sell has nothing to do with whatever the promo is for. But smart marketers, and USA again being one of the better examples, have found a way when possible to try to make that little sponsorship tag at the end be a button, an exclamation point, something that's sort of uh, the, the final little joke in the promo. Alpha male, let us introduce you to the beta male. He has poor communication skills. Um, he lacks self-esteem, and his standards are very low. I'll kiss everybody here. Dudes, chicks, everybody. Beta male movies start with Meet the Parents tomorrow at 7 on USA, presented in part by the Geek Squad. Again, smart advertising just tied in there, added to the promo, and added to, uh, to the Geek Squad for, for Best Buy. Other networks try it, and sometimes it, it doesn't work quite as well. Dive deeper, go farther, and see the hidden room of the ocean bottom, as only the Discovery Channel can show you. Secrets of the Deep, Sunday at 8, on the Discovery Channel, sponsored by Red Lobster, coming in and jump up on the seafood festival going on now. Red Lobster.
I love that. See the world's most amazing creatures and then eat them. But sometimes you get really, really bad ones that look like a, a, just a train wreck. Repo presents the Allure Magazine Expert Alert, brought to you by Neutrogena. On Situation Comedy, even when things aren't looking so rosy, here's an expert alert to make sure your complexion is. If you want to get out of the house really quickly, smooth the rosy color 3-in-1 cream on your eyelids, your lips, and your cheeks. Add some mascara, and you're ready to go. Makeup can be easy. Making a great sitcom may prove a bit more challenging. Situation Comedy, every Friday at 7, 6 Central, only on Bravo. Watch what happens. And watch for more Allure Magazine Expert Alerts, brought to you by Neutrogena. Like, what was that? It was a promo for a show, Situation Comedy, a reality show about making a situation comedy. And then some ad sales guy sold in a package with Allure magazine, promised the editor she could be on camera, and then sold the whole thing to Neutrogena. <laughs> so in, in 30 seconds, I mean, nobody knew what happened there. Now, the other thing is that you know, everybody's trying to figure out a way to, to make the breaks more enjoyable. But the first thing people try to do is get rid of the breaks, certainly at the top of the hour, because we know that's when people change the channel. And it's that idea of accelerated flow, which is really the, uh, changing that psychological time so that you don't have that urge to hit the remote control. We first saw it with squeeze credits that NBC introduced in the late 90s, and everybody's been experimenting with ways to do that. Now people are trying to come up with something that's even more seamless. Um, e has done something interesting. They, they sort of jumpstart their credits, is they actually run the credits at the beginning of the last segment. So coming out of the last commercial break, you actually see the credits, and then you go into the final segment. I'll show you what I mean. A life. Valentine's Day, the perfect time for a heart to heart. To heart, to heart. And all new girls next door, Sunday at 10 on E. When you see them together, they literally light each other up. On October 4th, 2001. So it goes on to the rest of it. So the credits, you, you got them at five minutes before the top of the, or actually more like 10 minutes before the top of the hour. So at the top of the hour, True Hollywood story ends, fades to black, and then the very next show, the storyline or story arc of the next show begins. Bravo has been really good doing that, is that rather than moving the credits around or squeezing them, they bake them into the show very much like the opening credits you often see in TV shows. They, they don't have throwaway content at the end where they stick the credits in. The storyline, the story arc continues all the way to the very end, and the credits exist right in here, and then they begin the story arc of the very next show, and often they'll do it back-to-back -back episodes. I'll show you an example. This is uh, uh, Bravo, which Bravo is it? Um, Oh, uh, Project Runway, that's what it is. So you're coming out two episodes of Project Runway, and because it's so tight, you almost can't tell where one episode begins and the other one has ended. The idea is that you just keep watching it sucked along and brought into to a whole flow of watching hours and hours of Project Runway. A very big celebrity by the name of... <laughs> Previously on Project Runway, each of you will be creating a new look for one of your fellow designers. So you just ride out of one and ride in. It just looks like a segment change. All oh, and it works. 
hooks people in, increases the flow significantly. All right, so to wrap up, I just want to tell you, this is how we're taking a lot of stuff that you guys are thinking about and trying to turn it into practical use with this whole idea of, of cross-platform or transmedia marketing. Our real focus these days is on engagement, keeping viewers involved. They come to TV for one thing, to watch shows. Anything that we do should try to enhance that experience, to get them to stick around, and also to offer guidance, whether it's to other shows on the same channel, other platforms with similar content or even the same content, but being able to move our viewers and our users, essentially ping them between all the different platforms we have. And then the final thing we're trying to do is, is weave our brands into our content so that we, as broadcasters, as cable casters, as uh, network people, as channel people, can stay relevant to our, our viewers. But what I want to leave you with uh, is uh, the, the 2007 bug collection, because I, I told you about I, I do these collections, and part of what I do is also sample all the lower third keys that, that happen, just kind of randomly, and put them together in a, a montage with music. And it's interesting, uh, uh, all the different names that people use, snipes, lower third keys, decos, dogs, bugs. And I was going to tell you about the bug thing. It, it's interesting because um, I worked at VH1 way back in 1987, and we actually put the very first bug on American television. The reason is that my boss at the time, a guy named Jeff Rowe, was really concerned that our audience was confusing VH1 with MTV. Because back then, both MTV and VH1 just played music videos. And there was a lot of crossover of artists. And we used the same type at the bottom of the, of the video. So there's really no way for people to know until we went into a break what channel was what. So he said, is there a way that we can put our logo here in the lower third, or the lower, uh, uh, lower corner of the screen? And we checked with engineering. They said, yeah, there is a way we could do it. Again, it was the late 80s, so the engineering was still fairly primitive. So we put a little VH1 logo up there. And back then, VH1 had no viewers at all. Nobody watched VH1. Not that many more people do now, but back then, even fewer. We got so many phone calls, people upset, that Tom Freston, who was the, uh, the chairman of MTV Networks at the time, called downstairs and said, get that fucking thing off the air now! And, uh, but we convinced him after a while that it was important to keep it there. But the point is that people were so irritated and upset by this because it had never existed before. And now, particularly with so many channels, bugs aren't quite as bothersome to people, particularly now that they're transparent. In fact, they've gone from being transparent to be invisible. People tune them out. They don't notice them anymore. But they work nicely as, uh, as lighthouses for people who are channel surfing or bookmarks for people who are watching multiple shows at the same time and they can't remember, was I on channel 48 or was it 92? Is a, a bug is a good way of helping them. But now that we've got all these lower third keys, I don't know if you, if you saw the Emmys and uh, Lewis Black did this whole diatribe about the lower third keys. He says, we don't want to know what's on next. We want to watch the show that's on now. And then the, uh, the New York Times, uh, a couple of days ago, did a whole article on it. So it, it sort of raised its ugly head. But anyway, so I, I collect these things and trying to figure out a, what we should call them. And I just came with this idea that it, it's, it's really in-content messaging, although some people would probably say it, it's incontinent messaging because we're pissing all over the programming, which is probably true. But so this is a, a, a random collection of some of the bugs from 2007. I can't watch this. I can't watch this. I can't 
can't watch this. I can't watch this. My, 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 I can't my watch TV this. makes me so bored, makes me say, oh my lord, what is this garbage? You don't want to cover my eyes and plug my ears. It sucks. And that's no lie. It's about as much fun as watching paint dry. Lord, my, I do one notch. And that's the reason why ugh, I can't watch. I told you, homeboy, I can't watch this. Yeah, nothing but trash in your nose. I can't watch this. This. Yo, give me that remote control. I can't watch this. Change the channel now, man. I can't watch this. That's VH1, of course. <laughs> so that's it. I'd say it took you through sort of the stuff that we worry about on the television marketing promotion side. And I guess uh, you want to do some Q&A? Sir, any questions? He's already starting with a laugh. I work in television, so I have a thousand questions, but I'll start with just one. Um, Nielsen, you mentioned the NASCAR. Nielsen yeah. doesn't measure if you if you uh, click uh, mute, right? No, uh-uh, they don't. Yeah, I've never even thought about that before. That's really interesting. But you know what? I and I will find out if TiVo can, because they might be able to. So the problem with the Nielsen thing is they're just measuring minute by minute. And, you know, a, a break is full of 10-second, 20-second, 30-second elements. So they tend to average those. So the, the Nielsen Empower stuff is very incomplete, but that's our new currency. Well, I won't ask a 1,000 questions, but I will ask one other one. Um, how confident are you that their new people meters uh, can predict if the person is actually in the room? They, they can't. Nothing can. Even the, 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 the TiVo stuff is probably, even though it's obviously skewed to a, a TiVo audience is, is probably the, the most true measurement because uh, people tend to be very interactive with their, their DVRs in general. And, uh, and you can tell if they're involved because they start moving things backwards and forwards and you know, they miss a line, they'll rewind it a couple of seconds and play it again. So that gives you a much better sense. If you, know, if you see that people literally are interacting with the content, you know they're involved. How many people are involved? Is, you know, is it one person in the room? Is it 12 people in the room? That's another thing we don't know yet. Um, earlier, you mentioned uh, how, uh, or during the earlier part of the presentation, you talked about how the most watched commercials were not part of the most popular shows. So I wanted to know if we could look forward to future programming that's actually um, degraded to achieve the standard of uh, <laughs> the programs that actually aren't being I, watched. Hopefully it'll go the other way. It's funny, I, I was, when I was driving up here, I was talking to the, the, the people at ABC, uh, their research people, their ad sales research people, I should say, and they, they said, you know, do you think it's going to get to the point where we're telling our advertisers we reject that spot because it's not high enough quality, that it's going to drag down the rating for the break? You know, in the sense that, you know, the same way programmers say we're going to reject this show because it drags down the rating for the network, why wouldn't you do it for the advertiser? But chances are they're just going to rotate all those different run of schedule spots around. Although if you think about it, if you had a really great commercial, the A position, that held people, you know, chances are you're going to get them to stick around a little bit longer. It, just, it seems to me that, I mean, it is, I was being kind of humorous, but actually as I think about it more, I mean, if you have a, a program that for whatever reason the audience is engaging, it enjoys watching that program, yet the content of that program is actually 
not that great, then the commercial suddenly becomes an interesting thing to watch. <laughs> it might work that way. I mean, because it's funny because networks are now beginning to gather empirical evidence of what shows have the highest retention. And they're trying to look for, you know, what's the secret sauce in here? And they're finding that, uh, uh, that shows that are, are more, and some of it's very intuitive, that uh, dramas and comedies tend to be more engaging than reality shows, and certainly much more than, uh, than information shows, in including entertainment information shows like uh, stuff on E! or Entertainment Tonight or those kinds of things. But they're beginning to, to look at different models of content that seem to, seem to have the, the highest stickiness factor. So as we move forward, I, I think we'll begin to see a change in program development based on, okay, you know, is this a show that's going to attract an audience or is this a show that's going to keep the audience? It'll be a, a, probably a, a, a subtle shift, but I think it will be a shift. Success of the e-ticker thing through the ads. You know, they won't say, uh, but their retention is still the lowest. Mm. And uh, I, I've actually seen some competitive research from their competitors that say it's not working. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, people say, well, how do you know if it works? I say, well, from, from my point of view, I watch it, and if it stays on the air, I figure it's working. And if they take it off the air, obviously it didn't work. Mm. So mm. it is just sort of in, in, empirically seeing what people are doing because nobody releases any of this information. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Um, have you studied how product placement is working and how it's evolved and are there accurate metrics for it? Yeah, they, they are developing all these new metrics now and you know Nielsen again is, is trying to to really lead that, and I sort of just kept away from all that, and just worked to what's inside the break rather than what's inside the content. But obviously, again, it's that simple notion, people come for the content, and they will stick around for the content. So if your product placement is done well in the content, you're probably going to have a better bet of getting that exposure. But how, how deep that exposure is or how positive it is, that's what people are having trouble measuring or even beginning to understand. Part is that, you know, do they remember it a day later, two days later, three days later, uh, or even just testing, do they have a positive feeling about this brand, whether they even remember seeing it or not? And there's so many variables involved in knowing you know, what has influenced that decision. It's really tough to know. And another question. Um, that graph that you showed us with the difference. The six-month drop-off? Right. Do you have any theories about why it would be, there would be that big a gap? No. In I cannot figure that out. Would it be I really, I, I, that and, and people like seeing, saying that they're watching A&E more than actually watching it? No, because, well, <laughs> well here's the other thing. The, the, the numbers there, again, are wobbly because they're based on minute by minute. So mm -hmm. they're not that accurate to begin with. But still, there, there's an, enough of a, a differential, differential there that, that something's got to be responsible right. for it. And, and all those networks that had that are, are my clients, so I know what they do, and, and I don't know why it works. Because, like, I'll say USA, I mean, they, they do things great. Right. But it's and, they, and, they, and they did have a, a, a good, they were pulling theirs up, but they're also the number one show. But A&E, bless their hearts, they tried really hard, <laughs> but they have very little promo time, and that may have influenced it, too, is that things are called promos that really aren't. Um, 
and their promo department is not that skilled. They, they're not the best engaging promos. So, I mean, I've looked at it from all different ways, and, you know, there, there's something there. I don't think it's a fluke, but I don't know what it is yet. And nobody else does either, or at least if they know, they're not telling me. I'm building off of one of your questions, which is, are there, are people developing numbers or metrics or techniques for tracking um, unauthorized viewing? So when somebody records something on their DVR and then they put it back up online, or if it, they're putting on a file sharing network or a BitTorrent site? I don't know. I don't know, I don't know. Well, I think once you, if you record on your DVR, Getting into your computer, I don't know how anybody could track that. And the cable operator couldn't track, it, let's say you had a DVR base, a, a cable operator DVR tied into your set-top box, because you're going to be hardwiring it out of the, of the box into your, I don't think anybody could track There's that. There's companies like Big Champagne that do numbers on music, on Yeah, but that's, but that's all going, because that's all internet based because you're going from a DVR you're literally taking it to another piece of media. It's almost like recording onto a DVD and then taking that DVD and playing it somewhere. Is you wouldn't know where that DVD came from. Yeah, I, I well, mean, maybe, I'm thinking you know it's what? like there, if, there if you purchase a CD that. or you. There's a yeah. on the, the what? There's a data run down the side. Well, there used to be on analog, on analog broadcast. There used to be a data run down the side. Well, there's the the the, the uh, vertical blanking yeah. thing where you can put something in there. But I, I don't know that when you put it onto a DVR, I don't know. But if there's a way, they'll figure it out, yeah. Okay. And then someone will figure out a way to, to break it. And on and on. Um, I'm just wondering about like sort of like cliffhangers. I'm, I'm assuming that that was like a way that people the television people were trying to get people to stay around during the commercial breaks, and I don't know what I don't know what cliffhangers are called between the commercial breaks. Yeah, but I mean, I don't is is that something that just didn't work? And like, is it now because content is sort of like owned by not the network? I don't really know. No, no, no. They still do it. I mean, writers still do that. Is they you know, like what happened uh, a couple of years ago when ABC went to a five act structure for their dramas, and people were very upset about it because dramas, hour long dramas, had always been four acts. And the unions and everybody were upset that, you know, directors and writers couldn't tell their stories in 4X. But the first two shows that ABC tried it with were Lost and Desperate Housewives. So that shut everybody up pretty quickly because they were able to tell a story really well. And actually what they did is they, they put a big cliffhanger in the last five minutes to get people to stick around and, and then closed up that top-of-the-hour break. Whereas if you watch CSI or NCIS or Law & Order, there is a, a long last, fourth last act followed by a break with commercials. And there's tremendous drop off there. So ABC really, I mean, they, they cleaned up. So the point is that, yeah, they, they still use cliffhangers in, in all the internal breaks. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the way the story's being told. But writers always try to ride up to the break and, and give you a reason to come back. But it's not, it's just not working as well as it used to, or now there's just reality shows, or what? I, I think part of it, yeah, well, I think certainly with reality shows, it's just, you know, how engaged you are to begin with, and just there's so many choices out there now. And, and people, you know, with literally 350 discrete television networks out there now, that's a tremendous amount of choice. Yeah. 
Hi, I'm sorry I came in late. Um, I had a question about the relationship between advertisers and television producers and television networks, because obviously there's this whole sort of crisis going on with measurement and all the rest of it, that no one's really sure what the currency is anymore. And you were alluding a little bit to integrating advertising a little bit more with television content and mm -hmm. all the rest of it to keep people involved. So my question is, how is the relationship between television, like the broadcasters, the producers, and the advertisers changing? And is that changing to a point that they're willing to work together a little bit more? Or are they, they do, yeah. They are now. I mean, it, it's every year it becomes more and more muddled. And the, the creative community in Hollywood hates it, but the reality is that to, to try to sustain the economic model that pays their salaries, they're having to do it. And so, you know, you see some where it, it's done nicely and lightly and the product is well integrated into it and, and feels natural. And then you'll see others. It's like, oh, geez, you know, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And I think those are the ones that are going to be failures. But as far, I mean, first of all, you've got, uh, you, you actually have advertisers, you know, creating content now, going back all the way to the original day, the 50s of television, where you, you had that as well. Because in the early days, NBC and, and CBS didn't create any content. The advertisers created all the content. The networks were just the distribution platform. And then the networks realized, hey, this is the way I can make money. But it's funny, the very first person who was concerned about the relationship between content and advertisers was uh, Desi Arnaz and, uh, with uh, I Love Lucy, because they were the first ones who actually owned the rights to their own show. And even though they were getting like a 60 share, Desi Arnaz was still worried that people were going to tune away during the, the breaks, even though they were only going to go to two other channels and they had to physically do it, <laughs> because he wanted to make sure that he was getting the most money from the advertisers possible, because he owned the show. So he was the first one to start thinking about that and try to create that relationship. And if you, if you go to YouTube, you won't see it on the syndicated version of I Love Lucy, but if you go to YouTube, and, and I think if you Lucy and commercials, you'll see they used to transition out of the show. These curtains would open up and you'd have the advertisement there. So it was literally connected. There was no dip to black. So, and, and at that time there was no product placement. But so the relationship has always been there, but now it's become much more melded uh, in, in the fact that, I mean, MTV just announced that they were doing a deal with having several of their sponsors develop content for them. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you already see things like Home Depot and, and uh, other ones creating do-it-yourself kind of programming. And, and Bud TV, which has kind of been a failure, but that's an advertiser trying to create an entire platform and network of content. So do you think it will get to a point, though, that they'll start working together on things like metrics? Because there's that tension that the advertisers want metrics that will maybe underestimate the audience a little bit so they're paying less, but as the, the broadcasters want metrics. Yeah, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, they would all prefer to have the most exact information as possible. But Nielsen has always been so wobbly to begin with that, you know, everybody hedged their bets on it. But I, I think everybody really, I mean, there are probably some people who don't who would like to skirt the issue. But the the more granular, the more exacting the information, the better it's going to be, and the better it's going to be for viewers and users as well, because if you start getting information that's targeted and relevant to you, then mm -hmm. maybe watching commercials won't be so bad. Yeah. So do you, do you think there's a need to go to a single metric then, or do you think that there's any interest in having like a variety? Because we saw at the upfronts, there were all these different metrics yeah. floating around, and everyone's using something different. Do you think there's going to be a push towards going to a single metric? Well, Nielsen would like that. Of course they would. But, yeah, uh, yeah I, and, until, uh, until somebody can figure out how to, to, 
to get past all the, the bugs and problems. You know, it's going to be whoever has the best politics with the best metrics together. Who's going to be the biggest push? Because when you've got, if you think about it, there's really only six media companies out there that make a difference. So if you had three of them suddenly deciding this was the metric, it's probably going to determine it for everybody else. I mean, that, that raises all sorts of intriguing questions, one of which is um, whether audiences know when they're being advertised to. And I'll give you a, for in, a couple of for instances. One is uh, in, the, in the very sort of smart, make fun of ourselves, NBC YouTube ad, you say, such as light bulbs like these made by GE, and it says available at Target. Well, I'm wondering if Target, at a minimum, approved that. And I'll go to another NBC show, I watch way too much television, 30 Rock, mm -hmm. in which they were making fun of themselves, right. a show about making fun of this network that's struggling. And uh, there's a, of course we're not going to do product placement in our show. We have more integrity than that. And throughout the episode is a dancing Snapple bottle. Right, yeah. Well, I'm wondering if Snapple actually paid for that. Yeah. Um, in, in that case, yes. In the other one, the YouTube one, no. It was just because I know the guys who wrote that. And that was just supposed to be funny. And the available at Target thing was a, just an added part of the joke. Well, I work in news. And in news, it's a big deal. You yeah. know, I mean, the Camel News Caravan, you knew Camel was right. sponsoring the Camel News Caravan. Uh, you know who the advertisers are when you know when the advertisement is coming. But this came up in the Olympics, I guess, two or three cycles ago when the CBS News personnel covering the Olympics, not the sports people with the news, were wearing the Nike swoosh. They were wearing $3,000 yeah. worth of Nike gear. And so when it's entertainment programming, maybe not, but I mean, that's a question about the integrity of what, what it is that you're Yeah, pushing. certainly on, on the news side, it becomes completely different. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, on the Weather Channel, all those guys where I can't remember what the brand is, but they, and they, they get some kind of barter deal in exchange. There's, there's a, uh, a sponsorship billboard for that. But I'd say most of the times you see it, it, yeah, it's paid for. But you know what's funny about that? You, you mentioned that Target thing, is I actually found myself at, and I've watched that spot so many times, uh, I found myself at Target and I, and I found myself reaching for the GE light bulb. And I thought, why am I picking them? Like, oh, shit, it's that damn YouTube thing. Just somewhere in the back of my head. Because I had a positive feel, because I love that spot. And it, 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 the halo was that I could have picked Sylvania, but I picked the GE one. Until I compared the prices, I found that the Sylvania was cheaper, and I put the GE back and got it. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.